This is the future of a live fortnightly conversation where host Santilla Jingayape talks with creative thinkers about the brave and bold ways we can make a better future. Presented by State Library Victoria. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of The Future Of, brought to you by State Library Victoria. My name is Santilla Chingayipe, and I am the host of this series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from where the library is located, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We're discussing the future of gender equality, which is something that is quite uh, topical at the moment. And International Women's Day is coming up very soon, so it's uh, prescient to be thinking about ways in which we can dismantle gender inequality. And to discuss that, I am joined by Zoe Condliff, who is a data activist, a gender advocate, a researcher, and the founder and CEO of She's a Crowd, a social enterprise committed to addressing and counteracting gender-based violence. Thank you for joining us, Zoe. Thank you for having me, Santilla. It's great to be here. Great. Um, so I guess I want to begin with just an overview of what She's a Crowd is all about. Yeah. So She's a Crowd is a feminist tech startup and we use crowdsource data to make cities safe for women and address gender-based violence. Um, I guess it all started because I was working in gender advocacy and I noticed a huge data gap when it came to gender-based violence. I noticed that there was this chasm between women wanting to share their stories and um, those stories actually becoming data that would be necessary to address the problem in a in a kind of long-term and preventative way. Um, and and then, of course, we saw, you know, we've seen over the last five years or so how important sharing stories really is for change through Me Too um, and then all the way up to, you know, this week, I guess, as well. Um, and, yeah, I guess I just uh, wanted to create a startup that would create a safe and anonymous place where people could share their experiences but then turn those experiences into uh, relevant data and insights that could be used in policy and planning for prevention of gender-based violence. So you mentioned data activism. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, so I guess there is a movement. We know that data is, you know, some people say data is the new black or data is the next big revolution. Um, data is big data, um, especially, is a very, I guess, valuable um, and topical kind of concept. But then what we've also got is this concept that data is not equal and data holds a lot of power. And so if we look at that through the lens of power and who holds power in society, we notice that a lot of the data that we have, a lot of the data that is collected and a lot of the data that is used is skewed um, kind of emulating traditional power imbalances in society. Um, and so then what we have is this kind of emerging movement of data activism that looks at um, this concept of counter data. So which data can we collect that somewhat addresses that power imbalance in society? Which data can we collect that is not already being collected by those in positions of power because 
potentially they want to turn a blind eye to a particular issue or they just don't value that issue in society. And what we see is there's a lot of counter data that I believe needs to be collected and the counter data that I'm particularly interested in collecting is that about uh, gender-based violence and what goes on behind closed doors as well as out in public space for women and non-binary people and other oppressed groups when it comes to their safety. So how are you collecting this data? Yeah, so we have a safe and anonymous crowdsourcing platform at she'sacrowd.com and it's just a web app so no one has to give their details and sign in or anything like that. Um, And then people share their story through our platform and that story is geotagged so people can, they don't have to, but they can add a precise location Um, and then they can also add any details they want in their own words. Um, Every question is optional and the way that we designed it was to kind of uh, try and make it as similar to how we found women were sharing their stories anyway um, so that it felt as comfortable as possible and it didn't feel like a, you know, and clunky, uncomfortable portal that, you know, we've often heard bad feedback about. So we created this kind of... Um, a safe and anonymous inviting place for people to share their stories and be a part of a movement. And then we have extremely strict and, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, extremely high data security processes as well to ensure that all of that data is anonymous and remains anonymous. And then we we um, aggregate it and we analyse it and that filters through to decision makers who we work with um, to ensure that they understand what's going on. Okay. So give me an example of how this platform works. I mean, is it like what mm-hmm. sort of stories are women sharing anonymously? So there's so much to say here. Um, there's a huge range of stories that are shared. Um, I should also give a bit of a content warning, I guess, here um, to discuss that um, because I, I guess we'll be talking about sexual assault and gender-based violence. So um, just be mindful of that. But yeah, we get, um, we get a lot of stories about um, rape and sexual assault, um, whether that's, you know, at a university party on campus or, you know, in a laneway um, or I went to a friend's house and this happened. But then we also get stories that are just, you know, I don't feel safe here and I don't, feel comfortable here and then we get stories that are like you know I've noticed that in this particular bar you know young international students are targeted around here or on this tram during peak hour there a businessman pressed up against me um and so we get a huge range of stories and I think that this is really important is I don't really want to draw a line in the sand around what constitutes an important event. I think that's very subjective and what we know with um, safety is safety is subjective. It's, it looks very different for different people. We were running focus groups um, recently and in the same focus group we had one woman say, as a trans Indigenous woman, I actually feel less safe when there are police around. And then we had another woman say, I actually feel more safe when there are police around. 
So we can see how safety is subjective depending on who you are. And so we really want to take that person's experiences into account and center our data around their personal experience of that. And to do that, we also acknowledge that perception of safety is just as important as an actual incident that has occurred because if you don't feel safe or if you don't feel like you're going to be okay getting from A to B, then you're going to avoid that place and you're going to not have the same access as someone else who would feel safe moving around. And I do believe that we all should have a right to feel safe moving around our cities. It's just a basic right that every single person should have. And so, yeah, I guess that's how we understand safety and we understand um, gender-based violence on a continuum where you have, you know, you might have these very extreme stories coming through, but then we will also be very interested in something that might have happened a while ago, something that was just not just, but, you know, a catcalling event or, you know, I got stared at in a creepy way. You know, that stuff all factors in and it's really important to us as well. And I think there is there are not many people out there who are collecting data that, you know, encapsulates all of this. And we know that with crime statistics, you know, only 15% of sexual assaults get reported to the police anyway, but then that's only sexual assault. What about all the other things, what about all the other events that go on? So you collect the data, you analyse it, and then, as you said, you feed it to people in policy-making decisions, uh, roles. How then do they use this information? Mm. Yeah, so we've got a huge job ahead of us and I think um, there's change that needs to be made off on a variety of levels. So the kind of baseline level, the way that I see it anyway, is the baseline level is kind of awareness, right? Awareness in the general population and bystander awareness. Now, we've seen countless campaigns and um, initiatives to spread awareness. My view is that that's important. But what's next? Once we're all aware, what's next? And so what She's a Crowd is trying to do is bridge that kind of that story to those in positions of power who actually have some sort of decision-making or legislative abilities to change the status quo. And so that's when we start to see levels such as we've got physical infrastructure and asset management levels such as is there something better we can be doing with lighting or is there something better we can be doing with bike paths um but then we've also got that policy level and interestingly enough what what I've noticed with she's a crowd is that at this stage our our insights and our data are falling into the hands of the policy makers and the advocates And they're the ones that are at this point in time most interested in it. And that's because we've got an issue with our, we've got kind of like um, an issue, there's like a loop that's happening where policymakers and decision makers are like, we can't do anything about gender-based violence because we don't have any data suggesting it's happening on our tram or our bike path or where we're on this street. So we can't make a case to actually do any kind of infrastructure changes or do anything about this because it's not. And so then it's it, it's falling onto the level above to say we want to use your data to make a case in the first place 
that this is an issue that's important and this is something that's happening and then the rest will fall into place. So we've kind of got a long road ahead of us because we're still at that stage of advocating and uh, we're trying to uh, work with decision makers to do some, uh, I guess, gender mainstreaming so that this will take effect across a range of um, aspects that can be changed. So just so I understand this correctly, you are providing this information to policymakers, but not everyone is taking up the information. I guess, Or or using it to implement measures that could see some kind of cultural shift. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely tricky for us. We don't have an existing market. Like, you know, if you start a business, you're pretty sure that there's a market there ready to, you know, accept your product. No, we had to be a bit disruptive and tell people, we think you should be listening to us. We think you should be uh, taking our insights on board in your work. Some people saw that as we were creating a problem for them. Uh, One particular sector, uh, the university sector, I'm just going to say it, um, seemed to believe that they were all very like, yes, this is what we need. But as soon as it got to a level of, uh, I guess, realising that this is going to mean that they're going to have to accept that there's a problem and then, you know, be held to account for accepting that there's a problem, they wanted nothing to do with us because they saw us as creating an issue potentially that wasn't there to begin with which was that they didn't want to see the issue in any data because then it means, you know, it's out there and it's public and they have to do something about it. And so, and that's, you know, been the attitude of, you know, yeah, I've seen that attitude a little bit. And then we've also got the other spectrum, which is decision makers that are like, I'm ready to take responsibility. We want it. We want to do something about it. I want to kind of imagine how frustrating it is, but also just thinking about it more broadly in the context of, um, domestic violence in this country and when, you know, I think about and read a lot of the material from grassroots and community organisations who talk about how there is this information that's out there, they are, you know, publishing these reports that clearly outline where the need is and yet there is this gap when it comes to those in positions of, you know, power um, failing to implement that. So, so you do get... Um, uh, sort of cosmetic policy measures introduced. So ad campaigns, for example, but as you said, you know, how do you move beyond raising awareness to actually going, a lot of this is about, you know, a cultural attitude shift because we're talking about the patriarchy in many ways, you know, which is which is which is yeah. the, the beginning of <laughs> of this of this bigger problem of gender inequality. And I wonder, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you navigate that frustration if you've got a situation where you clearly know and you can identify where the problem is yeah. and there is just this um, inertia on the side of those in positions of power? Yeah. Look, I think that is such a great question. Um, I just, it's so tough. I guess I can tell you a little bit about the things I've done. I'm not sure I have all of the answers for this. This is... Um, as, as you said, like we live in a patriarchy, um, and we're not going to address that overnight. And I think like recognizing the complexity of this issue is the first thing that I've done and recognizing, you know, we've got so many amazing different people here in Australia and all around the world who are doing their bit. And I guess the part that I'm passionate about is using 
stories as data because I do believe that data holds a lot of power. And something that I've also noticed is that um, men will listen to data and when you're trying to make change in a space that's male-dominated, which is a lot of spaces, um, you could, yeah, I, I guess it's been a matter of um, me having these experiences where I would, when back when I was working in gender advocacy, you know, just talk about like, oh, you know, I've heard of this anecdotal story of, you know, women saying this, um, this is happening, and then versus that versus showing them a map and saying, look at all of these places where this is happening. Look at this list of data that I've got. The response is very different. So I guess what we're trying to do is um, interrupt a little bit and interrupt this cycle of just. Um, I think we're having a bit of a technical issue because I think Zoe is frozen. Um, The joys of going live. Uh, Bear with us, everyone, and we'll see if we can get Zoe back online and we can continue this um, very uh, engaging and insightful um, conversation about uh, data activism and gender inequality. Hello, everybody. So sorry about that. My computer froze. I mean, technology. It couldn't handle it. It couldn't handle the conversation. The conversation was I mean, just too hot. Yeah, but isn't, it, isn't I mean, just talking about technology, isn't it disproportionately men that work in tech and build these devices. <laughs> yeah, this was, it was the patriarchy was shutting this conversation down. Yeah, that's right. Um, sinister about some wild conspiracy theory, but anyway. Um, so back to our conversation. So you, you, were, you were saying that, um, so I guess I want to know what role does data activism, play, what role can it play in, um, you know, dismantling gender inequality? Okay. Yeah. So I guess, um, I think data activism plays a huge role in dismantling gender inequality because as I kind of was talking about before, I think that, um, I think, I mean, what we're dealing with is a structural issue. This isn't something that can be solved with choice feminism or, um, yeah, I guess then when I say choice feminism, I'm talking about this idea um, that's very popular right now um, that's all around, I don't know, all feminism is is like a woman's right to choose whatever she wants. And we see this a lot in, um, I guess, marketing campaigns that use feminism um, and we see this, I don't know, we see this a lot in popular culture, I guess, as feminism does become more mainstream um, at at this point in time. But I guess what I'm really interested in is how to dismantle the patriarchal powers that be on a structural level. And when I look at this as a structural issue, um, and I look at this also in the context of today where we have data as an emerging power um, and we also have technology ruling our world, Um, I'm trying to understand and I'm trying to create solutions that use data and use technology to dismantle those systems. And I find that data activism is one way that I can do that. Um, I I know like... um, yeah, there are so, there are countless examples of ways that um, that data activism does do this, and I think um, Serena Williams actually has a really great example when she talks about um, childbirth and the way that um, 
black women in particular die in America, this is, more often um, in childbirth than white women. And so she's actually done kind of in her own way a data activism project trying to collect data about why this is happening. And we can see how powerful that that, that was. And I think um, that's the kind of thing that I think we need more of. And, uh, yeah, just collecting this counter data to try and... Um, balance the scales a little bit um, and creating, like, data equity. Um, okay, so, I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying. So you, so collecting anecdotal evidence stories from women and then feeding that back to people in uh, policymaking roles. And I wonder, one of the things that's come up in recent years in this, in this country in the, in the conversation around domestic violence is the burden of proof on victims, this idea that... Um, you know, you have to be able to prove that something happened to you. And we've seen it at a political level as well, where um, in inverted commas, it's been, he said, she said, kind of, kind of, mm-hmm. kind of environment. This, so, you know, post Me Too, we had this big moment of believe women, believe her. But we're clearly seeing that that's quite a flawed um, uh, slogan in many ways, because um, the system, the legal system under which we 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 operate, um, requires evidence, and in many cases, um, a lot of you know uh, assault um, that happens to women is um, hard to prove, particularly when you're talking about coercive control and all those sorts of of of, of yeah. ways in which women um, uh, experience abuse. And mm-hmm. I wonder then, how does data activism fit into that when you do have culturally um, an inability to believe women when they say that they are experiencing domestic violence or domestic abuse. Yeah. Yes, I think, like, this is such an um, interesting point and the legal system, I believe the legal system is not set up to address gender-based violence and rape. I, um, and I think we've seen lately there's, the dismantling of the family court is very worrying to those of us in this space for this reason as well, because that was kind of one of the only, it's still a very flawed system, but um, yeah. Uh, anyway, I won't go too much into that, but um, I guess I, I do believe that um, I think rape and sexual assault needs to be treated, uh, needs to needs to be treated differently and have a different legal system than um, another crime. And that's because the type of harm done through rape is very hard to prove, but it's also a very different and misunderstood type of harm as well. And then to stretch that even further to, as you mentioned, like coercive control and psychological um, abuse, we just have such a lack of understanding of the way that it plays out in society, the way that it looks and the way that it affects people. And so how can our legal system possibly catch up with that when we don't even understand the first thing about it? And I I just don't think we do. And I don't think that, yeah, the emphasis is there on understanding it yet. And I guess um, that's what I guess I'm passionate about is doing that research and also collecting those data that will help us understand how it really plays out and how it affects people. I think something else that's interesting is like this idea of sharing your story. And I think it's often, it sounds really fluffy and it sounds 
like this like nice thing to do or whatever. But what we've noticed is that like it is key. It is so key to ensuring that people feel like they're going to be taken seriously and to even give them the confidence to then report it through a legal process. And we've actually heard stories and had feedback from people who've shared their story first through She's a Crowd or through Me Too. And then that just that process of sharing got them to a point where they felt like they could then report it through a more formal um, formal system. But then, of course, we know that uh, that system itself is flawed. So, so, I mean, there's a lot that I want to ask you, but I'm also very aware that we're yeah. running short of time and this is very much a future-looking podcast. And... Mm. pandemic highlighted in many ways, particularly when it comes to domestic violence, that um, certain methods of support were not uh, accessible for women because they were trapped at home with their abusers. So they couldn't access helplines, for example, they couldn't access um, support systems that they traditionally would. So uh, innovation was key in terms of how support was made accessible to women. So I think in Europe there was a use of code words at pharmacies, for example, that ensured that women could get support. Mm. And I wonder what role does technology have in playing in ensure in 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 providing support for women, but also ensuring that they do feel supported and that there there is some outcome when they do share their stories because there's one thing sharing the stories and being re-traumatised, um, but I would imagine that the outcome for everyone that comes forward, would they would want to see some justice rather than, you know, being dismissed or their stories being dismissed because there's not enough evidence um, under how the legal system defines um, evidence. Did you mention COVID earlier? So I think you just cut out. Were you talking about that? Yeah. Um, Yeah, totally. And we've seen, you know, the rise of these kind of like make these hand gestures when you're on Zoom or, yeah, these codes or whatever. And it's the, the question that just comes up for me is like, yeah, always just like, and then what? Like what system do we have? I don't, I don't know that I believe in the system that we currently have and I'm, about wanting to use technology to advocate for a better system. Um, During COVID, we collected a lot of data about COVID-specific events. So we did two campaigns specifically trying to raise a data set about people's experiences during the pandemic. Um, And then I built a chatbot as well um, and a COVID-specific page. And one of the things I just want to say really quickly that I found really interesting in the marketing, well, not the marketing, I mean the the public health messaging, um, government public health messaging around the COVID time was there was always this um, this four reasons to leave kind of we heard, four reasons to leave, four reasons to leave, four reasons to leave. If you look at the legislation and if you look at that COVID policy, there are five reasons to leave. And one of them is if you're fleeing from harm or violence. And that was the one that was always left out because it was not seen as important enough to say And that, I mean, that says it all for me, is that was left out of the messaging. It's in the legislation, it's in the policies, but it was left out of all of the messaging. And so we ran a campaign called The Fifth Reason, trying to share that share that um, policy that you can actually leave your house if this is the case. But it just, I mean, I have so much to say. I just... I I guess a counterpoint to that, and this is just some conversations that I've had with people that work within the domestic violence space, was that given the risk that a lot of women were under, um, 
especially with the lockdown measures, it made it very difficult to even leave, you know. Yeah. And so the, yeah, I, I think it was a very complicated time where people were dealing with um, circumstances that were, we've heard it said many times, unprecedented. So, I, so I, I, yeah, but but I hear what you're saying in terms of how poorly we communicate um, mm. what is accessible for women when when they are um, at risk of of, mm. of, of, of violence. Um, I will have to unfortunately end the conversation here because we're really out of time, but I have really enjoyed um, learning and understanding more about data activism and the work that you're doing with She's a Crowd. So I appreciate you jumping on and um, even working through the technical difficulties that we had. Um, thanks for everyone that stayed on and um, uh, listened to this conversation. Again, if you want to catch up on past episodes of The Future Of, you can stream them via whatever podcast app you use or via State Library Victoria. I will see you in a fortnight. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Santilla. The Future Of is a fortnightly conversation produced by State Library Victoria. To help make a brighter future for the series, please subscribe, rate, leave a review or share it with your friends. You've been listening to The Future Of. To find out more, visit slv.vic.gov.au and search for The Future Of.